what is the proper approach to understanding difficult biblical questions? The answer is not found in human reasoning or seeking to apply human logic to God's Word. Really, biblical scholars have adopted rules, which they use, the term that is used is hermeneutics, or a method of studying the Bible, which they teach and follow in their reading and explaining the Scripture. This is one reason they will not come to understand God's Word. But if we are not aware of the logic and principles revealed in the Bible, then brethren, we also struggle with some of the difficult questions in the Bible. Let's notice in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God says to us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you notice this in context into Scripture, you realize that it's talking about God's Word. It's telling us in the beginning of this chapter, it says, Why do you spend money for that for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Then we later find in verse 11 of this chapter, in speaking in context of God's word, it says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And so God's revealing to us that our way of approaching things is not his way, and how he thinks at times is not how we tend to think. And so we have to look for his guidance. It's interesting in the book of Psalms, in Psalms 103, Psalms 103 and verse 7. It says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. So it's not as if God is hidden from us. His understanding or, you might say, approach or ways uh, to explaining things. And in the Bible, we find there are certain examples that we can look to that help us to understand the principles that we should use in regard to understanding God's Word. It's very obvious in one sermon that I cannot cover all of those. And so my focus is going to be use one example and then go through that particular difficulty in the Church of God in the New Testament to see how was it addressed and what became important to the decisions as God reveals to us in his word. And from that, we'll understand a very basic principle that is powerful in how we should look upon certain topics and also reinforce, brethren, for us the things that we believe. And the topic we're going to examine is the subject of circumcision. Now, as we go through this topic, please understand that what God had done raised many difficult questions for the apostles and God's servants in the New Testament. I think sometimes we don't recognize the difficulty of it because we see it in retrospect, 
But it was not only an issue of what God had done at that time that raised controversy. It's also the fact that in God's word, in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, we read in verse 48 regarding a stranger that is a Gentile. It says in verse 48 of Exodus 12, And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. Now, please understand, we kept God's Passover, and as we keep it, we understand God is passing over our sins. And so when the issue arose in Acts chapter 15... In verse 1, in context of the scripture, you can understand why this was a difficult issue. In Acts 15, in verse 1, it says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they understood the connection, and we certainly do as well, between the Passover, and salvation. But at the same time, certain events had taken place that God's servants, his apostles, had come to understand. And as a result, we know preceding this that there were many, many hundreds and thousands, perhaps, of Gentiles who came into the church of God and were not circumcised. So how is this resolved, and how does the Bible explain it? And it's in the explanation of it and the things that God has revealed to us that we see a very, very important principle regarding understanding God's Word. And in this case, it was a difficult issue. So let's go back and look also at, you might say, part of that question, because it's also addressed in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 9, or 6 through 9. In Genesis, I said Genesis, excuse me, Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul wrote, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So it was was really, when you look at the subject of Galatians, which involved circumcision, which then led to a number of other issues, there were those who were preaching, as he said, a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So we can look upon it as a biblical issue, but it's a very important issue and fundamental to God's church and his work. It says, and even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And so this was a very important question. It was also a difficult question among God's church and among the people of the very first, the original church of God. You might also wish to read part of Galatians 3. I'm not going to do so at this time. But it's very clear here that there is a certain logic that 
became a part of the answer, which we will also then explore later in the sermon. But Paul, in this, he basically said to them, and I'll read verse 1, it says, O foolish Galatians, this is Galatians 3, verse 1, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And please understand, it was a perversion of the gospel Then it really got down to the issue of what was right. It was not just a matter of understanding. It was an issue of what was the truth. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. So let's go back and see the history of how this issue developed and realize that it actually developed by the very hand and actions of God. Going back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, which is a setting for the events that followed in Acts chapters 10 through 15, I'd like to point out that what God did is he drew specific attention to the ministry and God's Spirit working in his servant, the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 9, And I'll summarize, we find where Peter first started by seeing a man in verse 33 who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwell at Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So the first event was the healing of a man who had been bedridden for eight years and he was paralyzed. Now, obviously, it was God who moved Peter to do this through his Holy Spirit. We then find the next thing that took place in the scriptural account, which was a part of, you might say, a preparation for the events that followed, but it was a preparation on God's part. And that was... At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This is in verse 36. This woman was full of good deeds and charitable deeds, or good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her and they laid her up in the upper room, And since Lydia was near Jaffa, the disciples had heard that Peter, who was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Says Peter rose, went with them, and when they had he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with him. But Peter, putting them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and saw Peter. She sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. What happened? It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so these were events that led to what God then did through Peter regarding Cornelius. I'm not going to read all of the account, but I would like to hit some highlights. The first is that Cornelius 
was a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. But this man, who was a Gentile, verse 2, was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he, that's Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And you find in this that the message was God has recognized your alms. God sees the heart and he saw the heart of this man. And those, as we read through the account, it's very clear, not only Cornelius, but those who were close to him who also believed. He gave him direction to send men to Jaffa and to bring Peter. That's found in verse 5. He did so. We read it was on the next day in verse 9 that they drew near, or they went on their journey and drew near the city. It was events that God had coordinated. Peter had gone up to the housetop to pray. It was about the sixth hour. When he became very hungry and wanted to eat, he became very hungry, wanted to eat, then he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And if you think about it and read on, you realize that of all those animals, none of them were clean. Because if they had been, Peter could have obeyed what he was given in the vision. So as the voice came to him, said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You see, there was nothing clean, so Peter's response was, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. A voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. It wasn't once. It was repeated and then repeated. Now, Peter did not jump to conclusions. He did not know. In verse 17, it says, While Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made their inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So he was called and summoned. And they explained what transpired. He invited them in, verse 23, and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So we then read where, obviously by God's guidance, Peter went with them. And when he did, he found, and he personally said to them, verse 28, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with and go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So in those events, Peter had come to an understanding that it was God's hand and that what God was revealing to him was that he should not call any man. It was not about food. Although we do find in his response a reinforcement of his practice. 
and that was not to eat anything that was unclean. So says, therefore I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? And of course, as you read through the account, which again, I'm not going to read all of it, but rather I'd encourage you to, because what we find here is that Peter began then to preach because of what they said to him. And as he did this, as he was preaching God's word, we find that as he did this, God poured out his Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all of those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. This was absolutely shocking to them. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. These men were not circumcised. And yet they received God's Holy Spirit. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now Peter's response, obviously because of the practice and what he had been taught by Christ and what was done in the church of God. He said, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Then they asked him to stay a few days. This was something God led, God guided, but it raised a tremendous question to the church. We find then in verse 1 of chapter 11, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So what did Peter do? Well, Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying. So he went through and he recounted to them what God had revealed to him, and then how God had led him, and then what God did. Notice here in verse 15, it says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we are given here actually an understanding of why Peter also commanded them to be baptized. He understood that God had connected the two together. They were not apart from one another Just as in God's church, some was baptized. Then through the example in the scripture, we lay hands on and pray that God grant them the gift of his Holy Spirit, which he's promised. But what was Peter's response or statement to them? Did he get into then a biblical discussion or go back to the Old Testament? No, his answer was very simple. It says, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, When we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And if God did this, then who am I? If God did it, obviously it was his responsibility, his authority. He accepted it. 
The response of those who were there says, When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, The God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, as we go forward, we're going to see, as this question arose again, and it was addressed in Acts 15, there may have been a, a considerable amount of discussion. But what is revealed to us in the Bible, and what God made clear through his inspiration, what was really important in the discussions, is given to us. And as we go through it, we'll see it has the very same focus as Acts chapter 11 and what Peter said in verse 17. And you know, brethren, this is the very first important principle, I think, of logic that we need to take when we look at God's word. And it is, what has God done? What did God himself, Jesus Christ, actually do? Let's notice this in Acts chapter 15. We notice again, now this was after some time, it still remained a question. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, and they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So they had come to, they did not want to divide the church, they did not want to separate brethren, and so they agreed they would go to Jerusalem. We read in verse 5, it says, Some of the sects of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to keep and command them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, there, there obviously was a, a lot of discussion. And I suspect in that, uh, Exodus chapter 12 perhaps was was read. That's God's word. That's the Old Testament. And I suspect that God's servants may have also pointed out Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, perhaps Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, or Jeremiah 4, 4, where in each of those cases God made it clear that his desire was and his message was is repentance and it's circumcision of the heart. There's not only, not only the flesh, but really of the heart. What's interesting is none of that is mentioned here. It tells us there was a dispute. But that was not the focus of what God reveals to us regarding this conference. Let's notice what his focus was. Because what God reveals to us is the testimony of four men. Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James. Let's start with Peter. It says, when there had been much dispute, verse 7, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart Acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. 
and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their heart by faith. And so, what do you say? This is what God did. And obviously, God used him, and he was there. He was a witness, and God had, in a sense, a witness of his spirit being with Peter, even before these events had started within the church of God. Now, the dispute was resolved, and there were certain issues that were addressed, and Peter actually alludes to them here, that is, to those things that did become the decision of the church. He says, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Because, please remember, the not only about circumcision, it was also the custom of Moses. Now, those customs, as it's referred to, actually were of the traditions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes. And I'm not going to go into that part of the subject, because that's not my focus, but you can read in Matthew chapter 23 where Peter is referring to a yoke. And it's in Matthew 23 that Christ reveals that the yoke that was very heavy, a burden that was very heavy, was put on by those who controlled the temple. Christ himself said in the book of Matthew, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. And so, it's not referring to God's word or his laws or the instruction of Christ. It's referring to the customs and the practices, which Christ actually said in Matthew 23. They, they command you these things that they themselves do not do anything. They don't want to even lift a little finger. Peter's testimony was about what God did. Verse 11, it says, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So what he witnessed to and what we read of was of what God did. Verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. What did they say? declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. What did God do? Well, it was very evident by God's intervention, because these are miracles not performed by these men. They were performed by God. We all know that, brethren. It was God's hand. And it was very evident in the ministry of Barnabas and Paul. And, of course, chapters 11 through 14 give us a testimony of that, and it's recounted here. Continuing on, then it says again, after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. So Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. It says, known to God from eternity, 
are all his works. So the emphasis went back again. Even as a judgment was made, which is accepted by God's church and his servants, what did God do? You brethren, when you pick up the Bible and you start looking at certain topics, there's a lot of arguments about the Sabbath. But when Jesus Christ was on this earth, God in the flesh, what did he do? He observed the Sabbath. He did not observe it in a manner that Jews had in certain areas. In fact, they actually eventually accused him of breaking the Sabbath. But he observed the Sabbath. He made it clear that he was Lord of the Sabbath. He also gave us principles in the New Testament and examples in how to observe it. So what is the most powerful testimony regarding the Sabbath in the Bible? It's God's observance of it. You can read the same in the book of Genesis. God created it, he set it apart, he made it holy, but he also rested on it. Now, when you start looking at various areas of teaching and you start looking, what did God do? It becomes rather simple and clear. And a lot of the difficulty of, you might say, argument or interpretation, they're fairly simple when you just ask the question, what did God do? Because in many, many cases, because of the example of Christ, because of the hand of God in the Old Testament, we can see that we have revealed to us God's actions. We live in a society where we understand, I don't think it was true in God's, with God or with uh, those many times in history, but in our society we understand actions speak louder than words. I don't think that's really true with God, brethren, because God's actions and his words are the same. There's not the weakness of the flesh or the hypocrisy at times that we encounter in life of human beings. God's word and his actions are the same, but it's hard to deny his actions when people at times wish to argue his words. Because the Bible makes his actions clear. So the very first principle I want you to see in terms of understanding certain subjects, and it was the first principle here among God's people, an understanding without question what God had done and that the Gentiles need not be circumcised. It was what God did. And it's also true. It would have been very helpful 20-some years ago if people asked the question regarding keeping God's Sabbath. What did Jesus Christ do? You know, sometimes we live in a society where People say, <clears throat> what would Jesus do? And, of course, then it's up to judgment. Perhaps a better question at times would, or answer to that or a way to approach the subject is, what did Jesus Christ actually do? <laughs> Not what would he do, but what did he do? And in some doctrinal areas and areas of understanding in God's word, that is plainly revealed. Now, this discussion was not over. It continued. And we actually will find then another principle, but it does start with God's action that the Apostle Paul used to further address this difficulty within the church. Because not everyone was willing to accept that. It was still troublesome to them. 
And we find in the book of Romans that it once again was addressed within the church of God. Let's notice, going to Romans chapter 3, I'm not going to read uh, a great deal of chapter 3. I just want to uh, introduce uh, really chapter 4 with the issue that is summarized in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, in addressing this, it was about five, maybe six years later, it it was several years after Acts 15. A decision had been made, decrees had been sent out, but it still was a troublesome problem. We read in verse 31 of Acts 3, Paul asked the question, says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. A very important principle. Faith and God's law are not in conflict. We establish God's law by our faith. And I think that's very important to understand in how God looked upon Abraham. So let's continue on, because it was an issue. And the issue had to do with salvation. Because that was a key issue. Is will you be saved? That was what was said in Acts 15. That's what we find again here. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. See, brethren, we need to realize God sees us in the same light. When we believe him, that doesn't mean that suddenly we do not experience and have difficulty with human weakness and our carnality. But when God sees our heart of belief, it says very plainly, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You're working, you're not looking to God, because really, brethren, we cannot of ourselves do something spiritual. It says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, that's God's word. And I think at times we need to understand where we can be criticized by others if we do not understand clearly or express clearly our obedience to God. That is motivated by faith. So it's just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. It says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Now he uses and quotes David's words, but he leads right to the very core question. He says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? He says, for we say, And I think that's not only Paul. I think it was God's ministry, uh, the leadership of the church. We say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? 
Now, it's interesting because he raises a question which we will also confirm by going back in the Old Testament and seeing that what he was saying was exactly what God did. It says, how was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So let's go back and notice in Genesis chapter 17 that that is the biblical record. And what is the Apostle Paul now doing? Well, he's now going back and getting into a detail of the events that took place by the hand of God in the life of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 17, we read of God's promises and how those events and the timing of them was carried out. Now, when we read through this, please understand, this was in a one-day period. And human reasoning would be very simple to say, what difference does it make? It all happened in one day. And how can you draw such a distinction? You know, sometimes we do not reason in the way God does. But if we accept God's word and we realize that God's servant was inspired to realize that it was important, the order and the manner in which God carried out his purpose was very important because God had a purpose in it. Let's notice Genesis chapter 17. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, My covenant is with you, and you should be a father of many nations. You know, as you read through this, you realize that there were no conditions. God instructed him, you walk before me, you be blameless. And God said, but on my part, is my covenant is with you, and you should be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you. Notice that. I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and the king shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It was a promise made. It was God's promises. It was a blessing. After saying this, then God said, verse 9, As for you, 
you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. So what was this covenant? Well, it was between God, Abraham, and his physical descendants. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Now, you can read through the account, brethren. It's very clear in the scripture. Circumcision took place on the eighth day. It was not a part of adult life, generally. It certainly would have been for those who, in the Old Testament, who were strangers, who sought to be a part of God's blessings and his promises to Israel. Because later in life, circumcision is not easy. It's difficult and painful. For a child, I suspect that without question there is pain, but it's also a child and it very quickly heals as it's growing. There's also then no physical memory of it. And I don't think any of us remember what happened to us in the 8th or 10th or 20th or 30th day. And so when you look at certain aspects of this, you realize that when it speaks, for instance, of a yoke, it was not about circumcision itself. It was about the other things attached to it in Acts chapter 15. Well, let's go on. What I'd like to point out here is exactly when was Abraham circumcised. It's later in this chapter. We find in verse 23, because God made a covenant, he also told him that your wife shall bear you a son in verse 19, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So God gave him certain instruction and he gave him direction. We find in verse 23, so Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. So it happened the very same day. It wasn't a day later. He immediately obeyed God once it was clear and God had given him instruction. We read in this that Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. It happened in 24, actually less than a 24-hour period. But there was a certain order. And let's go back and notice in Romans chapter 4 how God's servant, by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, reveals to us the importance of this. So we find a focus on what God did. We also then find a focus on when did God do it? What was the specific order of it? So even the details at times of what God has done and how he carries something out become very, very important. Because as we read in Acts 15, as James said, God knew and had planned well ahead what he was seeking to do. So in Romans chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? 
or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. (coughs) It's very clear in the scripture what God did in terms of the order of what he did, and God had a purpose in it. Now, Paul makes it clear then, verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, what was the basis of this decision or these statements? What God had done, in this case also, when he did it. The order in which he did it. How he in detail carried out his actions. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so we find in God's word, if you start examining how certain things are addressed, and this was one very difficult issue in the church, the Bible record of how it was addressed in terms of understanding, the logic of how decision was made, I don't question whatsoever there were other discussions. But the focus, brethren, that God's given to us, where he has, in a sense, revealed his thoughts. We go back to Isaiah. It says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And so what God's revealed to us and focuses upon in terms of how do we understand certain things in the Scripture? Perhaps the biggest and most important principle given to us is, in fact, God's conduct, his actions, what he has done. And you know, in the things that we observe and believe, brethren, time and time again, we find the examples, whether in Christ or in God's word, that was God's conduct. And God's revealed to us things he will also do in the future. And as I said, there's not a difference between what God says and what he will do. There can be humanly, we, we even in our life, you know, we... Look at each day according to God's will because we don't have or, or have control of life. God does. But in terms of understanding, in terms of reading something and trying to say, well, this is difficult, you know, the first and most important principle is if we have a record of God's conduct. And we do in many cases. We do regarding the Sabbath. We do in the New Testament regarding the Sabbath, his conduct. We do in terms of how he viewed the Jews. We have people today that look back to the Jews and and they're striving to observe some of the Jewish traditions or make decisions regarding certain things based on Jewish traditions. Christ makes a plain. He did not, you know, think highly of those traditions. He said, in vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We have issues and people who question certain practices and yet we find very clearly that Christ obviously participated. He was a part of those practices, whether it be tithing, 
in a sense of his instruction and his words that you should tithe. And But you have to remember more important issues, such things as judgment and mercy. But when we look at the scripture and we start looking at really important things that we practice, did Jesus Christ keep the holy days when he was on this earth? Yes, he did. You start looking at the issue, what has God done? It's very powerful. We can get in various arguments and discussions, and men do. I believe we do in God's church. We look to God's word, but I think one of the most important things we need to all see, because when we clearly see something, it strengthens our faith. It makes us stronger, and God wants that. God wants us to have faith and trust in him. And he said, powerful example. What does he say in 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Because what is he looking at? He's, he has begun to focus upon Jesus Christ and his conduct. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. One of the things God has given to us is his conduct. And he said to us, I do not change. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so one of the really powerful messages to us that reveals God's way is through his actions. And so, brother, when you read and think about certain topics or there are those who question certain conduct, realize that one of the very important principles of understanding God's word is to recognize and give importance to what God has done. I think that's also true in this age in which we live. Many people have not looked at what God has done through his work and through his church of past generations. We have in our lifetime very clear knowledge and example of how God worked through the church of God and through Mr. Armstrong. And that has been a guidance to us in the living church of God. Others have rejected that. They have sought a different path. They've sought a different way. We have continually in God's church looked to what God has done through his servants. And brother, we will continue to do that. And we also need to have each of us individually, and we certainly do collectively, to look at God's word and understand the importance of the example of Jesus Christ and the example of God through his word given to us.